Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Easter at Seabreeze. We're glad you're here. Matthew 28, verse 6, we read these words. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. We are glad that you have uh, decided to join us today to celebrate the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, at that time, no one could have imagined the impact Jesus would end up having on the history of this world. Now, whether you follow Jesus or not, there's just no escaping the scope and size of his legacy. We experience it every time we walk into a hospital or contribute to a charity. Yes, medicine and giving to those in need predated Jesus, but it was very, very rare. It wasn't until Christianity began to spread across Europe and the world that the first hospitals and first orphanages were established by those who were working to carry on the legacy of Christ and his care and concern for those who were sick and poor and for the children. Without Jesus, the treatment of women in this part of the world would be more like it is in the Middle East right now, where the message of Jesus hasn't grown and impacted the culture like it has here. But as amazing as all of this is, I think the legacy of Christ can best be seen in the lives of those who have been changed by him. One of the best descriptions of this is found in a statement made by the Apostle Paul, who was a first-century Christian. Now, Paul first thought of Jesus as a fraud who needed to be opposed and all of his followers rounded up and put in prison. And so that's what he was doing when Jesus appeared to him personally while he was traveling to the city of Damascus. And from that point on, Paul's view of Jesus shifted. It changed. And that ended up changing Paul's entire life. Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way. Now, what is a worldly point of view? Well, that's how things look from the vantage point of this world. That's the way we see everything. We live in this world, and what we see is what we see. Now, Jesus didn't look from the vantage point of this world, any different than the average person. And so when word began to spread of him doing miracles and claiming that he was God, his hometown dismissed it by saying, isn't this the carpenter's son? I mean, we grew up with Jesus. I've got a piece of furniture that he he and his father made. How, How can you say he's doing miracles and he's claiming to be God? And they dismissed him. Now, if you were maybe in the crowd the week of his trial and his crucifixion, you might have concluded that this was just another case of Roman justice gone wrong. But then after he died, sightings of Jesus started popping up from different locations and with different people. And from a worldly point of view, well, that, that just doesn't happen. Yes, people die, but you don't see them again walking around after that. They don't rise from the dead. And whenever we encounter something that doesn't fit with our view of the world, we will either reject it or we will have to end up changing our view. Now, usually we will reject the new piece of information that doesn't fit because it's easier to reject something new than it is to change the entire way we view reality. And so that's why most people today respond the way Paul did back then at first. They find a way to kind of explain away the resurrection and not really consider the historical documents or mostly just kind of put them out of their minds. But for Paul, Jesus ended up appearing to him on that road to Damascus. 
And that was impossible for Paul to ignore, impossible for him to explain. And so Paul changed his view of who Jesus was. And that shift didn't just change what he thought about Jesus, it changed the way he saw everything. He, he could no longer see anyone from a worldly point of view because he, he no longer saw Christ from a worldly point of view. Now, Paul is talking about his own story in this verse, but he says, we and not me. He says, we once regarded Christ in this way, but we do so no longer. Why we and not just me? Well, it's because while the details of the stories may differ, all of us who have decided to follow Jesus have experienced a similar process. Our view of Jesus Christ shifted at some point. It changed. Now, for me, that came after two years of examining the historic documents about Jesus, not just the ones in the Bible, but the other historical documents of that time. And then I ended up reading much of what the other world religions say about the world, and I concluded that the evidence about Jesus was too strong to ignore, and that the viewpoints of the other religions just really didn't adequately explain the real world that I found myself living in. Now, my story, of course, maybe is a little more academic than some, but like every Christian, it shares that from now on shift, that moment, the moment when our view of Christ shifts from him just being an important person of human history to being the one he claimed to be, God in flesh, the Savior of the world. Now, the impact of that moment is what I want to talk about this morning, because it's far more than just an intellectual decision. It, it changes everything. It changes the way we view our world, and most importantly, it changes how we view the people in our world, including ourselves. Once we begin to view Jesus no longer from a worldly point of view, that has two profound impacts on us. The first impact is, now I know what's wrong. Now I know what's wrong. Everybody knows something is wrong. I mean, there's a lot of good in this world, but mixed in, there's just a lot of pain and a lot of evil. You wouldn't find anyone who says, no, everything's perfect, everything's great. No, something's wrong. The daily news feeds are a log of what is wrong in this world. The big question, of course, is what? Because if you don't know what's wrong, then you don't have a chance of trying to address it or, or fix it. Some say that it's really a lack of education. That's really what's wrong in this world. You know, if people were able from an earlier age to, to be trained and, and to know the reality of what this world is, and you know, some of the ideas they have would melt away in the face of proper education, and that, and that would address what's wrong with this world. And so if that's really the case, that that's primarily what's wrong with this world, then well, then the solution is we need more schools. We need better schools. Some say, really, it's the lack of economic opportunity. You know, it's poverty around this world that, that foments and generates so much of the evil that we, we see on the news feeds. And so if that's really the case, then what we really need is economic opportunity. We, we need to figure out how to continue to expand the global economy. That will address much of what's wrong in this world. Some have concluded that it's really a lack of progress. It's, it's people who are stuck in old ideas that they will not let go of. And if we can just get them to get unstuck and, and, make, and progress in their thinking and understanding, that, that should change what's wrong with this world. And if that's really what's wrong with this world, then, well, science is our savior. Science should be able to fix that because, boy, there's nothing that informs us and, and 
progresses all kinds of good things as much as science does. But you know what's interesting about the last century? Is in each of these three areas, there was unprecedented in the history of humanity growth of these three areas. An expansion of education, a deeper understanding of how to better educate. The global economy is larger than it's ever been, including more people and elevating more people out of poverty than it ever has. And, and boy, science in the last century, it's, it's just mind-boggling to think of how much progress we've enjoyed and how much we've benefited from that. But for all of the advances in these three areas, the last century was the bloodiest century ever recorded in human history. It hasn't fixed what's wrong. Well, maybe the problem isn't a natural one like these solutions. Maybe it's a God problem. Maybe there's a supernatural problem. And for that, you turn to the religions of the world. What do the religions of the world say is wrong? Well, the Eastern religions, in various ways, all say that everything bad in this world is really an illusion. And the answer then is to, to meditate your way into accepting the illusion for what it is and waiting until this life, the illusion, finally fades. But you know, if you're a parent and your child is experimenting with drugs, or if you're married and your marriage is falling apart, it sure doesn't seem like an illusion. It sure feels real. And it doesn't help you to say that what I'm experiencing is an illusion. You need answers for those problems. Well, what about the Western religions? The Western religions, in various ways, all say that I haven't been good enough. I would agree with that. They also say, you haven't been good enough. I'd also agree with that. And the answer is, we just need to try harder. And then they, they give us, depending on the religion, they give us a different list of behaviors that we need to work on and rituals that will help us become better. And if we do these behaviors and we do these rituals well enough, there's no guarantee, but if we do them well enough, there's, there's a good chance that we might just escape this world when this life is over. But the question is, what do I do about this life in this world? Now, if, on the other hand, you become convinced that God really did take on a body, and he really did come to earth to save us, then it means that you also accept the reason why he did that. You view the problems of this world that Jesus came to solve in the exact same way that he views it. Well, how does he view it? A great statement about this is made in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. It says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. It deserves it. It doesn't get it, but here's what it says. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst. That's why Christ came. So now I know what's wrong. It's sin. Well, I kind of already knew that. But the word sin gives many, much more than just... A, an explanation that we're not good enough. It doesn't just mean that we do bad things. The word sin points to the reason why we do what we do. See, I already know that I do bad things. You know it too. I already know that I can get pretty angry if I don't get my way. I already know that, well, I can get easily discouraged and defensive if someone criticizes me. I already know that I, I can get so obsessed with something I'm working on and trying to perfect it to the point where I, I will actually run over people. I'll, I'll push people out of the way, people that I actually care about in pursuit of some task or a project that I'm working on. And this is just some of what's wrong with me. I'm not going to give you the full list. That, that's just a sample. 
Now, you've got your own list. We all know that we do things that are wrong. What we don't know is why can't we stop doing the wrong and start doing the right? Why can't I just decide to be better? Why can't I just say, you know, I'm not going to ever get angry again and, and have that decision lock in place? Why can't I just say, you know what, I'm going to receive criticism and learn from it rather than get defensive. I'm never going to get defensive again. I, I've tried to do all these things, and, and I've learned a little bit, but I still am pretty much similar the way I have been. Why can't we just decide to be better? Well, if Christ came into the world to save sinners, as this verse says, now I know why. You see, the word sin points not to an act primarily, but to a relationship. We hear the word sin and we think, well, what did you do? But the word sin primarily points to we sin against God. It's, it's in the context of a relationship that this wrong has been done. It's against someone. It's against God. It's a break between me and Him. Now, in any other relationship, breaks occur primarily on the outside. What I mean by that is if you have a break in a relationship with someone, then you go your separate ways. You no longer spend time with them. Now, that break might affect you on the inside, depending on how close you are with them, but you don't really need them in order to function in life. You may struggle for a while, but certainly 10 years, 20 years from now, you're, you're on your own. You're doing fine. But with God, it's different. We need God. And so when we break with God, it breaks us on the inside. Now, we go our own way, but we leave broken, deep on the inside. And so what's wrong with me is not just that I do wrong things. What's wrong with me is that I'm, I'm broken. And what that means is I'm now looking for something to piece me together, put me together on the inside at the deepest core of who I am. We all feel this. And so whether it's my anger or my defensiveness or my impatience with people, th those are just residues that are left over from the kinds of glue that I'm using to, to fix me, to piece me together on the inside. So if this is what's wrong with me, I'm broken, then it also means now I know what's wrong with you. I know because it's the same thing that's wrong with me. You're a sinner just like me. What that means is you're broken on the inside just like I am. And that's helpful for me to understand, not from an accusing standpoint, but I can now understand you more accurately. And this really helps in relationships. My wife and I have been married now for 33 years. We celebrated our anniversary just a couple of weeks ago, and we, and we were out celebrating. Uh, we met a couple who had been married for 73 years. And we were starting to feel pretty good about 33, and then it was like, we're not even halfway there. It's hard to imagine 73 years of marriage. But in our 33 years, one of the things that we've learned is that part of marriage is that you become familiar with what is wrong with the other person more than anyone else. That's part of what happens in marriage. Now, no one says this when they're getting married, and I do weddings, and I'm not going to say it, uh, just to let you know, you're going to learn more about what's wrong with her than anyone, and she, she's going to learn more about what's wrong with you. But that's what happens. 
It doesn't take 33 years. It takes about three days to begin to <laughs> begin to understand. Oh, oh, and, and you begin to understand that. And so whenever my wife and I struggle, whenever we get in an argument or get upset with each other, what, what our minds automatically do is it's very easy for us to make a list of what is wrong with the other person. Really what we do is we pull out the list we've already got, and we kind of rehearse it. We may add a few asterisks next. Oh, here's exactly what I meant by this. And we might even add a few as life goes on. But what we've discovered is the list of what is wrong with each other is very unhelpful. It just makes us matter and matter at each other. The, what's most helpful is why, not what. The why question really helps. The what question is just irritating. I mean, why did they say that? Why did I say that? Why did they do that? Why did I do that? Well, the simple answer is, of course, they're broken. But it's helpful to think more deeply about it than just that they're broken. The reason is because no two people break the exact same way. If I were to take a glass, drop it on concrete a hundred times, it would break differently a hundred times. It would break every time, but the shape of the pieces, the number of the pieces, the direction that they flew would be different every single time that glass was broken, and that's the way it is with us. We're all broken, but depending on the environment that we grew up in, the broken people that we lived around and that interacted with us and what they did to us and how we responded to that, that changes the, the shape of the pieces of our own heart. And it influences how we try to put ourselves together. It gives us understanding. And so when you learn how a person has been broken, it helps you understand why. You'll never understand all of how they've been broken, but as you begin to understand some of the pieces from their past and some of the pieces of the way they are, you begin to understand why they do what they do. Now, that doesn't excuse what they do, but it, it gives you an understanding. And if all we do is make a, a what list, it's going to lead to bitterness. If you just keep making a list of here's what's wrong with you and here's what's wrong with you, this is why I can't stand it when you do this, you're just going to get, eventually, your heart is going to be soured. It's going to flavor everything in that relationship. But if you instead take the what and try to figure out why, if you work on the what list, that leads to compassion. That gives you a heart for people. Because this is not just someone who's done me wrong, and here's how they've done me wrong. This is a broken person, like me, whose natural tendency, like mine, is to use whatever material they could find around them to try to, to put at least a few of the pieces of their life back together again. Now, that's a reason for compassion. That's a reason for sadness, not a reason for anger. If you find yourself angry with people, what you're doing is you're just focusing on the what. If you begin to ask the why question and get curious about why, you're heading towards maybe sadness more than you are anger, and that's more helpful. Now, if I know what's wrong with me, and I know what's wrong with you, I just have to do the math to figure out what's wrong with the world. Any guesses? It's broken, right? Because it's full of people like me and people like you. Now, we tend, when we think of the world, whether it's the entire world or the world that we work in, 
or the city or the state that we live in, we, we like to think that we are better than the world. And the way we do that is we think that, you know, if we were in charge, things would be a whole lot better around here. But I just have to tell you, if that's what you think, because I thought that. But if you think that, you just haven't done the math. You haven't expanded you on a citywide, statewide, nationwide, global level. If you ran the world, if I ran the world, I don't know that I'd want to live in it. It'd be probably like it is now, maybe even worse. We, we just haven't extended out the way we treat our spouses and our kids and people in traffic to how that might play out <laughs> if we were leading millions and not just us. I mean, we're under the illusion that we actually could handle the intoxicating effects of power without our brokenness multiplying damage in this world. Now, that the history shows that more when people get power, it just corrupts them. It's just really hard to be powerful and not corrupt. If you think you can pull that off, I would say you don't understand the darkness of your own heart and the nature of your brokenness. We think that the rage sometimes that boils in our own heart is farther removed from the crimes that we see on TV than it really is. And we think the harsh words that we speak do less damage than they really do. What's wrong with me and what's wrong with you and what's wrong with this world is it's broken. We're broken. That's what Jesus came to fix. And if we know what's wrong because of who Jesus is, that also means we now know the answer. I know the answer. You see, if Jesus was just another man who walked this planet then pick one of the many answers that are out there to this world pro world's problems and just pick one and just do the best you can. But if he really was God in a body, then his answer to what's wrong with me and you and this world is the answer to what's wrong with me and you and this world. And his answer to sin is grace, God's grace. That is the only glue that can put us together on the inside. Now, God's grace is not something that you can just kind of wave a wand over a broken world and all of a sudden everything's better. You're not just going to say, oh, look, that city is a city of grace. Everyone is just getting along. That's not the way God's grace works. Because grace is the power of God applied to a sinful and broken person. It's applied at an individual level, not on a mass level. You decide to accept it. I decide to accept it. And what that does is that begins to piece us together on the inside. Now, we're never going to be pieced together completely until we see Jesus. When we see Jesus, I imagine it's going to be something like, all right, well, let me, let me put the rest of this back. Okay, now you're good. But until then... I can make progress, and it has tremendous blessing and effect. But it's the only thing that can piece me together and you together on the inside. It's the only thing that can teach us how to really love people. So here's what's amazing about this. If I know the answer to what is wrong, it also means I'm pretty clear on what the answer is not. 
And that's helpful because everybody's looking for an answer because everybody knows something's wrong. And most people will spend their entire lives, decades, time and money on things that they think might be the answer, and they're not the answer. It's very helpful to know what the answer is not. Here's what the answer is not. First of all, it's not me. I'm not the answer. Now, this is important because while we never will say it, a lot of times we approach life from the standpoint that we think we can save the situation. We think that we are wearing a cape and we can be the Savior. And we can't. That's important to understand the limitations that you and I have. For me, example, for example, I, the reason I put so much pressure on myself sometimes and, and often end up condemning myself so much and caring so much about what others think about me is that I tend to, this is me being honest, treat the grace of God as something that I agree with and I'm grateful for, but it's not so much the actual substance that I'm gluing the pieces of my day together with. Let me give you an example of how this looks for me. This is my 28th Easter as the pastor here of Seabreeze. So I've done this a few times. I know the story well. And what's true about Easter is this is the biggest Sunday of the year, probably for any church, definitely for us. This is the fullest this room is going to be. Maybe Christmas Eve might be close. But more people will attend on Easter than any other Sunday of the year. So, again, this is a little window into my life. So what does that mean for me? I feel more pressure on this day than any other day. <laughs> and about a month out, I start feeling the pressure. And every once in a while, some of you will articulate exactly what I'm thinking. And I've heard it said this way, well, I hope you have a good message, because I'm bringing a friend. <laughs> I feel the pressure already. Thank you. Thank you for articulating that clearly. And now what they don't say, but what they're implying is, and if you don't do a good job, I'm going to look bad, and they're never coming back. So that's, that's the pressure that I feel. Now, I also know, because I've done this now 28 times, is that Guess which Sunday is the hardest Sunday of the year for me? Next Sunday. Why? Well, this may come as a shock to you, but not as many people will be here next Sunday as are here today. Isn't that amazing? But, now, I could be wrong, but after 27 years of experience, that's just my prediction. There's not, not all of you will be here next Sunday. And the question, of course, that I've often asked myself is why? Why not? And you know the answer that pops to my head most? Must be me. <laughs> Must be me. I mean, I worked really hard, but I guess it was a dud. <laughs> guess it didn't make sense. I guess it didn't connect. I guess I should have said something different. Now, I, I've, I've done this long enough to know that I know that's not true. But I put that pressure on myself. I mean, I, I know what's true is a number of you already have plans for next weekend. I mean, maybe you bought plane tickets and made reservations, and it doesn't matter what I say today, you're gone. You've already put money down. You're, you're out of here. You, you've made plans, and that's fine. Have a great time. And I also know that some of you are, well, you're, you're kind of just checking this out. Maybe this is your first time you've ever visited Seabreeze, and, and you're new to this. And I know the way I am with something new. I don't just trust and just jump in the deep end and say, well, let's see if I can sink or swim. No, 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 no. I I put my toe in the water, and then I check it out, I think about it, and then I take the next step, and 
That's why most people are, thinking people are, when it comes to doing something new. And so I know that it's just going to be a process, and it's going to take time. If you're new, to, to decide that this is important enough and this is valuable enough that you're going to reorder your priorities on the weekend to actually be here more than not. And that, that just takes time, and that's fine. So I know these things, but the question is, why do I put so much pressure on myself? And this is just one example of what I do. Why can't I just do the best job I can and then leave it? Well, it's because I, I have this delusion, and I'm sus- I suspect that you might have this delusion too in different ways maybe. But we have this delusion where I, I think that what I say and what I do has a bigger impact on the future than God's grace does. I, don't, I know I'm not wearing a cape, but I'm acting like I am. And like I said, I suspect I'm not the only cape wearer in the room. Now, you may not speak in front of people like I do, but like me, you face challenges on your job and in your family. And if you're stressed, if you're just stressed, wired, it's probably because, like me, you tend to think that you're more of the answer to the problems you're facing than God's grace is. See, the truth is, God's already on the scene. If you're here, God's at work in your life. I haven't even met you yet, many of you. God's on the scene. I'm speaking for 35 minutes. Then you'll go to lunch. Never think of me again, maybe some of you. That's fine. But you can't get away from God and God's grace. He's at work. And like I said, like, like me, some of you think you're the Savior of this situation, not Jesus. And whenever we take on the job of Savior without the power of Savior, whew, that's stressful. We, tend to, we have to run around like crazy trying to fill the shoes that only Jesus can fill. Now, I wish, honestly, I wish that I had the power to change people. I wish that, you know, I'm, I speak for a living, so I wish that I could craft my words in such a way that people, once they heard them, would say, oh, that's right, I'm going to be a completely different person now. But I, I can't do that. I mean, it sure would have come in handy when my kids were teens if I could have just said stuff and they would have changed. <laughs> it didn't happen. You know who had to save them? Jesus. I couldn't. Boy, I tried. I couldn't. I'm learning more and more as I move along in life to just do my part as good as I can and then trust God's grace to do the amazing parts. So I know the answer. It's really helpful to know I'm not the answer. That takes a lot of pressure off. It's also very helpful in relationships to know that it's not you. You're not the answer to me either. You can't fix me any more than I can fix you. You know the reason why I get so upset with my wife when we get sideways? It's because she's not keeping up her end of the bargain. <laughs> what bargain? Well, you know, when we got married, we did say the traditional vows and commit to love each other till death do us part, but what was really going on was something completely different than what we said. What was really going on, in my mind, was I have found the one person on the earth who can put my world together completely. This is going to be great. She was thinking much the same thing. Turns out, we were both wrong. 
We're great. We love each other, but man, she can't fix me and I can't fix her. You know, th- this is the top reason why marriages fall apart. You both discover that you didn't marry Jesus. I mean, you didn't marry a savior, you married a sinner, and that is very disappointing. I mean, you thought, this is, I mean, every one of us that got married, it's like, this is going to take care of things. And instead, it's, uh, not so much. This is going to be a challenge. And that really is a challenge when it comes to loving people, because if, if I need you to fix me, if you're my savior in some way, then I'm not going to love you, especially when you're not loving me because you're not doing your job. You're not fixing me. You're not saving me. And we've got a problem. Now, we don't just do this in marriage. We do this in relationship. As parents, we do this all the time. You know, the way this comes in parenting is, I'm not going to be okay until my kid is okay. Well, that's, that's tough, because they're going to do what they're going to do. If you haven't discovered that, then your kids are too little to learn that. You'll, you'll learn that. And if, if, if you need them to save you, you're in trouble because they can't. I mean, your heart's attached to them. You will feel whatever their journey is. But if, if you need to be okay, if they need to be okay, rather, for you to be okay, then they're your Savior. And what this does is whenever we ask someone to save us, whether we put this in words or not, we almost never put this in words. But whenever in our heart of hearts we are asking someone to put us together to fix us, we put pressure on them that dooms the relationship. No relationship can stand that pressure because nobody's Jesus but Jesus. And so I know the answer. It's not me. It's not you. I also know now it's not something in this world. A lot of people think, well, if I can't save me and you can't save me, then maybe what's in this bottle can save me. Then I'll get continually drunk. Or maybe it's this substance will save me. Or maybe it's if I can just accomplish this much, then that's going to make me feel less broken. Or maybe if I can come up with enough money and all the power that goes with that and the opportunities that come with that, maybe that's going to glue me together on the inside. And the lists go on and on. I mean, the, the list of Savior somethings is a long list. It's amazing how we can turn to a number of things in this world and ask them to save us. Now, to, to make the list of Savior something, the somethings have to be, have a glue-like quality to them. They have to be sticky. They have to be able to put up a few of the pieces of our broken life and world together. But what happens whenever we look to something in this world to save us, what we're really doing is we're just pouring glue on a pile of glass and watching it harden. We're, we get addicted to the glue. We become trapped in our brokenness. And now we've got two problems. Problem one was we're broken. Now problem two is now we poured glue on it, and now we're stuck and broken. But if Christ is the answer, then the next verse that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 is true. This is what he says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, remember he just said, we don't view Christ the way we used to, and so we don't view people the way we used to. Why? Because if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You see, we tend to view people, including ourselves, 
based on the past data. And that's understandable because that's all we know from a worldly perspective. That all we know is history. We, we, we don't know the future. And so whether it's us or whether it's someone else, we kind of plot the past. And if, if the dots, the data looks like it's going down, we just assume that's where it's going. That's what the future is going to be. If it's going up, everything's looking good, we just assume everything's always going to be great. That's the worldly view. That's all we can see. But what we end up doing, doing then is we end up being overconfident in ourselves if the data's going up and overly discouraged in ourselves if the data's going down. And we tend to give up on people if the data's going down. But if Christ really was who he claimed to be, and he really did rise from the dead, then if you add him to the mix of an individual life, it, ch- it just changes everything. It's like a new creation change. You see, Paul went from being a murderer to a missionary. That's a big swing. No one saw that on the graph. You don't go this way and then boom, that way. Only Christ can do that kind of thing. Everyone that we see is just one decision away from a completely different future. The decision about Christ, one decision away. So the problem with us is we're broken. And that affects everything. It it ripples out through us and into our world. And Jesus is the only one who can fix us. He's the only one that can put the pieces of an individual heart back together again. And that means he was much more than just an exceptional man of history who has impacted this planet. No, it makes him the Savior. And I pray that today you have heard God's voice more than you've heard mine. And I pray that you've heard about how much he loves you and the extent to which he's gone to put you together again on the inside, to offer you grace that can make you new on the inside and that can begin to change you on the outside. If it hasn't already, I pray that this Easter might mark the from now on moment for you. And if that moment is in your past, I pray that you would leave her here today and begin to see everyone differently because you see Jesus differently. Let's join join me in prayer, please. Jesus, we recognize that as we walk out of here and interact with people, that we are not just encountering mere mortals. We are encountering people who are broken, who have not only this life in front of them, but all of eternity. And that what they decide about you will change the trajectory of not just this life, but their forever life. Jesus, we thank you for the price you paid to humble yourself, take on a body, to die on the cross in our place, and to offer us the forgiveness that we don't deserve and a future that we have not earned. We are grateful and we celebrate your resurrection that changed everything. We pray this now in your name, Jesus. Amen.